At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Megan Watton to talk about the Urban Habitat Network. Megan is the Urban Habitat Network Manager for the Nature Conservancy. She works with scientists, partners, private landowners, citizen scientists, and volunteers to reimagine their properties as habitat for the benefit of wildlife and people. Most recently, she was the volunteer coordinator for the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute on the eMammal Project to monitor mammal populations in the Mid-Atlantic region. Megan has an MS degree in environmental science and policy from George Mason University and a BS degree from Ball State University. Welcome to the show today, Megan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. I'd first like to speak about uh, the path that Habitat Network took and then how I became a part of it. It all started with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and their great work that they do with bird research as well as citizen science. And throughout the years, they had many users of their programs call in and asking questions, usual questions and conversations about bird populations. They would have questions about what is the best bird seed to use or where do I put my feeder, those type of questions. Uh But there were also other types of conversations that they were having on the phone calls. And a lot of people were calling in and just wanting to talk about what they've done in their yard to support bird populations. And so what they planted and how they 
uh, added a certain feature that they see more birds in the yard. And they really just wanted kudos for what they were doing in the yard. But at the same time, they were calling and asking about if they were doing the correct things. And it mm. was really hard to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to answer those questions until in about 2005 when Google Maps became available. Oh, and it yeah. really, yeah, it really brought the mapping opportunity to anyone who had internet, basically. And so with the mapping opportunity and these questions that they were fielding from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the public, they were able to put together and find some funding from the NSF to build a program that is a citizen science-based program that allows users to map their yards to give scientists information on how properties are stewarded and managed. And so uh, they launched that in 2012. Uh -huh. And so and the rest is kind of history uh, since then. But most recently, the I have been hired on as the Habitat Network Project Coordinator for the Nature Conservancy. Mm -hmm. And I am here to support a new collaboration between the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the, and the Conservancy. So, wow, that is a huge project. Is this something that is countrywide, uh, worldwide? Yes, it is worldwide. We, anyone who has access to an internet connection mm -hmm. can access the Habitat Network and it is a kind of a Google Maps, Google Earth interface. So if you've ever, most people have used Google Maps at this point in their lifetime. And so if you can search on a map and find a property that you connect with, mm -hmm. you can use our tool for this type, uh, for the mapping process and for the citizen science. Wow, cool. All right, so I'm at my house here at the urban farm and I wanna, you know, I wanna play. What's my first step? Well, I would have you visit www.habitat.network um, is our URL, and we try to keep it fairly simple. Uh -huh. And um, if you have been a part of any of the Cornell efforts within uh, any of their other citizen science platforms, mm -hmm. your username and password for those platforms will work on the Habitat Network. Otherwise, you would just simply sign up for an account. And as you sign in through the process, we immediately kind of push you into the mapping process. And you are put into a Google Earth interface and uh -huh. we ask you to search for the pro your property. It's usually via like a 911 address type thing. Okay. And so uh, if once you find your property, right. um, we really immerse you in the, the mapping process. Cool. So what are we actually mapping then? So I go to this habitat.network. That's the URL, right? Correct. So I go to habitat.network and mm -hmm. sign up for an account. What are we going to map of my property? So when you sign up for account, you are pulled into a Google Earth interface and you, you find your location mm -hmm. on the map, wherever you're connected to. A lot of people like to, to map their yard, but you can map a a church property or a school office building mm -hmm. um, or a local pocket park or state park that you really connect with or use quite often. Right. And what you're going to do is the first thing is you, you navigate to a tool shed 
and we want you to tell us where the boundary of this property that you are connected to. So basically you just draw lines around where this property's boundary is. Okay. And it creates what we call a polygon and basically a shape. Mm-hmm. And so you've now told us this is my where I am interested in mapping and where I'd like to connect with. Okay. And from then- there we have two more steps in the mapping process. We then instruct you to fill in that property boundary with the types of habitats that are found ah. there. And really it's just a click and drag and go around, follow the edges of different habitats to map what is there on your property. Mm-hmm. And it's anything, habitats can be anything from buildings to pavement, lawn, forest, and pollinator gardens, things like that. Finally, the third step is we find that a lot of people and users want to give us a lot of detail about their property. And so we allow you to add objects to your map. And those objects can be anything from here's my dogwood tree to I've got a bird feeder uh, right next to my window or I have a compost pile or an edible garden in the corner of my property type thing. Wow. So that is that consists of the mapping process. You're basically telling us what is there on your property and you have a visual of what your property entails from kind of a bird's eye view. Wow, so you're collecting a lot of data, uh, and but I can't imagine that this is a one-time thing. So I don't just go map my property and walk away. What's the, what's the downstream effects of, of what we're doing here? No, we, th- you're exactly right. We don't want you to map your property once and walk away. We want you to keep interacting. So there are several ways we engage people and continue to interaction, interacting. The habitat network is exactly as it sounds. You're mapping habitat and you are networking with other people uh, that are also using this tool. And so we are trying to connect, uh, create a network of users of both novices to experts, uh, people with different practitioners from farmers to, you know, weekend gardeners to uh, beekeepers. Different people have different backgrounds and having their information and getting a conversation going about these types of practitioners mm-hmm. is what we want so that people can be interested or people who are interested can ask questions, they can get best practices, lessons learned, and really keep coming back and building the habitat and their their property for what they want to build it towards. Cool. So I guess this is a double-sided question. So what type of data is being collected? How are you using it for science? And then how can I use it for, you know, improving my yard? Sure. We have two really main scientific questions that we are focusing on in our efforts to collect data. Uh, The first one is what we call residential ecology, or just studying how living organisms use and move throughout a residential landscape. And so research has shown us that small changes on on a landscape can really support wildlife, Uh which is really amazing. But the larger question is, is what specific 
um, changes and how much change can really impact the greater conservation questions like climate change and uh, wildlife population declines. Hmm. So that's kind of one of the questions we're trying to understand throughout this data collection process. The other question that or area that we're looking into is kind of the socio-ecological question of not only what is um, out in nature, but how are people interacting Mm -hmm. with nature? And the working landscapes that humans have created over over the entire, you know, over the world. And so we are trying to capture these relationships, the relationship between people and nature and the relationship between nature and people. Hmm. And so the data that is collected through this mapping process and the interaction with these tools that we have at the Habitat Network are being used to address these questions. And so the data is really being brought in through the mapping process. And we are tracking and looking at all of the different habitats and objects that you're placing on your map. At the same time, we are also asking you questions about those habitat and objects. So this is all um, habitat and stewardship management data that we're collecting to um, use towards asking those or answering um, and investigating those two questions that we have. Right. So and how does it benefit me? Sure. One is... I really enjoy looking at my property from a bird's eye view. Uh-huh. So I've mapped my property. It would be pretty uh, poor of me if I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I've mapped my property and I really get to see where there are opportunities for me to grow whatever it is that I have a goal to, to do on my property. Uh-huh. Um, so one is just to, to get a bird's eye view basically of the habitats that you're providing and the opportunities that might be there. We also do a little bit of summarization of what you are ha- have accomplished on your property. So you get kind of a breakdown of the different types of habitat on your property or the property that you happen to be ma- mapping. Yeah. But really what's, we have several tools. I like to think of the Habitat Network as a, a toolbox. Uh-huh. And we have multiple tools in that toolbox. The mapping process is one tool where uh, we have resources and educational information to help you really start thinking about your property in a different way to be able to create habitat for the benefit of both wildlife and humans. Wow. While I was sitting here, I typed in habitat.network and I landed on your website. This is a pretty cool website. The striking (laughs) thing and the wow for me is, you know, when I landed here, was the amount of sites and the amount of acreage that has been um, mapped. You have mm-hmm. an amazing amount. Let's see, it says 23,300 sites created and almost 400,000 acres. Who's participating in this? We have um, participants around the world, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of our participants are here in the United States. A lot of them are has started from the original 2012 timing of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and a lot uh-huh. of their followers that they have there at the lab. Um, we are really trying to build this to more users across the United States and across the world. And so we have users in Canada and in Europe, Australia, um, and they really are just people who enjoy being outside on their on their property and mm-hmm. learning about what it is 
um, they have and what they can do for their property and yeah. for wildlife and themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, I use this metaphor sometimes. You know, when you're driving down the road at 60 miles an hour, you see a particular landscape. But when you walk that mm-hmm. same space, you see a different landscape. So one of the things that I suspect that this forces us to do is to go out and slow down and observe our space to see what's there. Have you found that's the case? Exactly. I definitely have found, and I believe you would find all of our users would agree, that they really start seeing their property or the property that they thought they were really connected to, and they start connecting at a deeper level. You get to see all of the plants and how they're interacting with the pollinators that are around them and how the birds are using different areas for the different resources that are there. And so, and you get to see all the little flowers that you never see when you go by a landscape, but when you walk through it, like you mentioned, you really get to, oh, that has like a really beautiful purple flower or really, this is attracting a lot of pollinators and look at all these different types of insects on this plant. So people really enjoy getting to know their property at a deeper level through this whole process. Yeah. When, and I think it's, it's the first step to kind of mapping, I'm going to use a big word here, mapping the genome of your property. You know, cause you're, you're, <laughs> exactly. you're really, you're really starting to pay attention. I don't, I don't know if that's the proper word, but it feels like the proper word. You're starting to pay attention to what's on your property and maybe the amount of biodiversity that's there. Yes. And I, that's, you know, that's the first step in the scientific process is observation. And so really that's what people are doing is they're getting out into their, uh, on their property. They're observing what's out there. They're really connecting to that. And the next step in scientific process is to start asking questions. And so that's the whole purpose of um, being involved in a, in a process and in a project like this is to start asking questions and thinking about your property in a different way and what you can do to really have an impact further on on the property for you and your health and the your health of of your community yeah. as well as the wildlife that's within your community cool so this is the urban farm podcast so i want to talk about how this might fit into growing food farming uh, like that sure i think that's a, a great question the habitat network is all about collecting and sharing habitat and land stewardship and management uh, data. So this includes everything from potted gardens to raised gardens or urban farms, um, vertical gardens, apiaries, compost, a lot of the different subjects that you've had on your program in the past all really relate to this type of, of mapping and thinking about your property in a different way. And so uh, we're, and we're also all about networking. And so we really want to be able to connect people and create conversations. Each of the practices I just mentioned have tricks to the trade. And so Mm, sharing those mm -hmm. tricks to the trade um, in a networked community can really start benefiting people who are trying to start their urban garden or farm and uh, can really, you know, ask questions and get feedback and learn from the whole process by being a part of a network like this. Yeah. Cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of hit you out of left field here. I want you to think about the different people that, you know, have interacted with this program. 
Do you have a really cool story that kind of stands out? Yes, actually. we. This is one of the ways I love to interact with a lot of our users is we have this featured site section of our website. It's mm. in the resources page. And uh, we like to look and find maps that have unique features Ooh. and then really highlight them on our website to just, you know, part of the process that I spoke of before when people were calling and just wanting kudos for their property, we are, we're trying to, you know, in, encourage people in the behaviors that we find throughout this process. And so um, a couple of them that uh, come off the top of my, my head are um, one property in particular had a pool in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't necessarily interested in keeping the pool. So what they did was they filled in the pool and turned the pool into a meadow. And so wow. um, they really took what was like a human structure, a uh, human built structure and made it an area where biodiversity came back and really flourished in that area. Another example is another featured site where a gentleman bought a, a house in Massachusetts and he has converted his entire lawn to native plants. And it is just beautiful. He has a, the structure and diversity of plants has just doubled, tripled, even quadrupled over his efforts, as well as so has all of the biodiversity and the insects and birds that he sees on his property and monarchs that are reproducing on his milkweed. He, he has a really fun story about his property and um, the transition that happened throughout his whole process of adding habitat. Wow. It might be fun to get him on the show. And uh, you there know, you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. So in this engagement, uh, how how are you seeing that it's this is changing people's minds about how they interact with the wildlife in their area? I think uh, they it really depends on where they come from and how it, it changes their view of wildlife on their property. Many people come in and they are just a citizen scientist who wants to deliver data to a program, which is great. But they really then start to, in that scientific process, observe mm -hmm. and start asking questions and then want to know more. So that is how the whole process is built to be and, and set up to really start having people rethink about their property as they start really to investigate it. Yeah. And throughout this whole process, we have educational articles and we have communication with all of our or e-newses, and we really start spurring people's interest in different subject matters by just contacting them and bringing up certain certain areas of interest, uh, pollinator gardens and how important pollinators are to the whole uh, food industry as well as to just the biodiversity and health of an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we really push different types of articles that we've written that are science-based, but easy reads, and it allows users to really dive into some really deeper questions and thinking about their property on a deeper level. It, as well as, like I said, it's a network. So if they right. start joining, um, we have a groups tool. If they join a, a group that they're interested in, start learning about that group um, and the individuals and the properties that are in that group, they might start networking out from that group into other groups that they might not have thought they were interested in, but really, mm, yeah. you know, they met a person that had 
a certain interest but in, introduce them to another subject area. So there's a lot of different ways to come into the network, into the project, and then kind of scatter out in different directions for different interests and really start learning more yeah. about um, habitat and how it benefits wildlife and humans. Beautiful, beautiful. So I'm going to shift on you now, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Sure. So the Habitat Network, as the name implies, ha is really working on building networks and communication between scientists and uh, the public, and then the public and the, within the public. And so really learning this process isn't necessarily a failure, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an ever-moving object in which you try one thing and it doesn't work and you try a new yeah. way of communicating or networking people. And so, you know, to build a tool like this and to learn how people and citizens interact with a tool is always a learning and consistently adjusting process. Um, we're currently in the process of working with some of our new users um, to learn how they interact with this tool oh, right. and uh, so that we can make informed and focused edits and modifications to improve their experience mm -hmm. as well as to maximize the use of the Habitat Network. So it's never static and it's always a learning situation. I don't know if that necessarily fits in with your failure, but that's kind of yeah. where we are as far as always learning and, and trying to apply new tech. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you consider your biggest success? I would have to say that uh, our quality of the maps and the data that we are collecting. There are some critics out there regarding citizen science and the data that's collected. Mm -hmm. And I believe with every published paper that comes out that has partnered with citizen scientists to collect the data to address those scientific questions is uh, just squashes those critics a little further um, <laughs> more. Yeah. And so the, the fact that this is one of the only programs that is collecting and sharing this type of data, and not to mention we are collecting quality data, mm. um, I find it to be a big success for not only citizen science, but also for science-driven research. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm a, uh, a scientist at heart. Uh, I've, I, you know, from grade school on, uh, you know, my favorite classes were always science. And so, you know, the fact that you guys are doing this, I absolutely love that, especially from, you know, the citizen science perspective and, and, you know, actually correlating the data to, you know, real science. So yay on you. <laughs> That's what we like to do. <laughs> yeah. So what drives you? I love nature. <laughs> I don't know if that's um, it's a very simple answer, but just the more and more you get out and you interact with nature mm -hmm. and being outside and the benefits that it can give and supply to the human race uh -huh. is just quite amazing. And it is resilient if we allow it to be resilient. Yeah. And so just, I love it, so I want to protect it, and I want to do my best, and I love working with the public and hearing stories, and that really starts to jazz me up, if you will, of just listening to people and how they act with nature, and then understanding how we can further that within the communities is, is what really motivates me to 
to get up every morning, if you will. Nice. Nice. So I'm all about education. I have to know, is there a book that's been influential for you in this process in your life? Uh, well, like I mentioned, um, I really get excited about communication with the public about nature. So it's kind. that's kind of what really drives me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have known that uh, Doug Tallamy's book, The Living Landscape, Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden, uh-huh. and his book, Bringing Nature Home, oh. um, ha- I know have influenced me and several of of the users of Habitat Network, as well as a lot of the organizations I'm interacting with, too. Yeah. What was the author's name again? Doug Tallamy with the University of Delaware. Perfect. Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, my piece of advice is uh, to join the new movement and to keep doing what you're doing. If, if they're listening to this podcast, they either have interest or already interest or already doing some kind of work, urban farming, gardening in their, on their property, yeah. and they have interest in that. And so to keep doing what you're doing and join the movement and help support hmm. citizen science and collecting data and how we manage properties so we can really start building and supporting wildlife and humans through habitat and nature. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Megan. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here. Yeah. It's, been, it's been a blast. Oh, great. So how can our listeners get a hold of the network? Well, like I said, the uh, website is www.habitat.network, mm-hmm. and you can get a hold of us there. Um, it's fairly easy. There's a, a contact us link and you can get a hold of us there. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash Habitat Network. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.